gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. It's not about the scotch, we promise. I'm Michael Lilienthal, your host, and this is Ethan Bartlett, my guest. Oh, oh, I see. So this time, you just took the decision completely away from me. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> like an abusive spouse. <laughs> Don't tell people what our relationship is like. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna let you in on a little secret. People know. Oh, do they? They absolutely know. Do they? They do. But do people really know? Does anybody really ever know? Yep, we're not doing Ocean at the End of the Lane anymore, so you can't ask oh, questions like that. Dang it. In that way. I really liked talking about that one, because then I could be a butt. You can be a butt, as the whole run of this podcast has proven, <laughs> about anything. <laughs> it's true, I can't. So, it's a special talent that I have. It is. It's a very good talent. Yeah. Did I just call your butt very good? I think you did. I think I did. You called my butt very good and a talent. So, huh. so and that's yet, what you did. When I call my wife's butt very good and a talent, I get in trouble. Funny how that works. That's Ow. why you should leave her for me. I mean, what? Wow. So, wow. we're continuing... I'm the one who killed you to take your wife. I will have it on the record. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's true. Uh, we are continuing to drink, gentle listener, because we're boring. We're continuing to drink the gentle listener? <laughs> we're continuing to drink the gentle listener. Just threaten everybody today. <laughs> positive. Not in a positive. That was a, a parenthesis. That's what I was looking for. You, sir. Not all are a parentheses, parentheses are positives, but all a positives are parentheses. Do you know what? But, I hate you. I know. Uh, we're you drinking didn't say... the Dalmore 12 year. That's what we're continuing to drink. We are continuing to drink the Dalmore. Yep. And have been drinking the Dalmore since actually the last episode, which if you'll remember, we had been drinking the Dalmore since two weeks before that. So we've been drinking also, this like depending long... on how time works, I can't remember if we might have been drinking it in between those also. No, yes, no. No, we've been drinking it like a month. Okay. So like a month-long bender on one bottle of scotch, so... So we're impressive. Yeah. Or something. Or bad. Yep. Extremely bad influences and also stupid. One of those things we are, though. One of those. One or more. One of these things is not like the others. What's Let's up? get your wife in here to read the rules. Okay. <laughs> that was a very good dramatic pause to look out the window, except this is an audio medium, oh, yeah. and no one knew you did it. I always forget me, that. And I'm not going to tell. You just did, though. Okay. Well, here's Karen to read the rules. <laughs> Karen, what are the rules? Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two, no one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three, Ethan must never say the phrase first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four, Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five, if anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. 
And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle, gentle listener. listener. Those are the rules. Great. Yeah, thank you, Karen. Thank you very much. Go away now. Leave. Leave the room. Let's pour the scotch. Oh, it didn't, you know, see, since we've been drinking it for a month, the cork didn't pop as well. Yeah, that's what that was. Yep. And once we clink glasses, the rules go into effect. Karen, get out! Why are you still here? (laughs) (laughs) Salute! Here's Mud Murai. So this month, gentle listener, as we told you last month, or two weeks ago, time is confusing. Timey wimey, wimey wimey. All that. Do we even try to do that quote anymore? No, not really. We're discussing Ellen Foster by Kay Gibbons. Um, and again, don't get the author and title mixed up. It was the title is Ellen Foster, which is why he said that before he said bye. Yep. The author is Kay Gibbons, which is why he said that after he said bye. Right. So, anyone confused? No? You weren't before he even explained this? <laughs> oh, some of you were. Okay, well, that's good. Okay, anyway. I think we're all on the same page now. Oh, good. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> wow, why are you so bitter? I really don't know. <laughs> I feel like I'm pre-mad at you for whatever you will do in this episode. See, I'm going to do a lot, probably. I'm post-mad at you for whatever you did do in the last episode or two, that's, which was a lot. That's true. I did do a lot. Like, uh, I'm considering uh, instating a rule that you don't get to say Schrodinger's cat ever again. <laughs> ever comes up again. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hello. It is you. It will come up again. What what does that mean? It means you trot out Schrodinger's cat about 50% of the amount of times you trot out vampires. I do not. And you trot out vampires all of the time, so that's I half of the not. time. <laughs> now, not that it's ever unjustified when you do trot out Schrodinger's cat. And also, I have this image of this half-alive, half-dead cat <laughs> being trotted out on, like, a cat leash. And, like, this cat is full I, of hatred. It's because... an object lesson. I give you a demonstration. Like, yeah. Just look at this. Just look at this cat. Anyway. Yeah. So, Michael, why did you pick this book? Um, in all honesty, here's why I picked this book. Where I used to live in central Wisconsin... About 15 miles away in Wapaka, there is a bookstore that anyone in the area, I would highly recommend you go to it, called The Book Cellar. Uh, and it's the cellar book cellar as in, as in the like basement. a basement yeah. book cellar with a C. Um, yes, it's great. And I would peruse their aisles on various occasions just to look at books and maybe find books that you know I'd heard about and I wanted to read or books with interesting covers or books with interesting first lines and titles and things. And it was a lot of fun. And on one particular occasion, I went and I saw uh, two books with two identical books sitting next to each other on the shelf. And I thought that was interesting. And so I picked one up off the shelf 
and read the back, and read the first line and first paragraph, and thought it was absolutely intriguing, and so I bought both copies, and these are those books. And also, uh -huh. there was one other reason you gave me when you gave me this book. What reason did it give you? Right there, literally oh, yes. on the front of the book. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's Oprah's Book Club. Oprah's Book Club That's picked what did this it. book. That's what did it. It was Oprah's Book Club. Uh, no. It yeah. was... No, much as I have very little respect for Oprah in general, her book club does pick interesting books, but that was not why. No, that was not why. What was why... Yeah, just yep. go with it. <laughs> okay. Just roll with is it. Is that there is a, uh, a cover quote uh, by Walker Percy. Uh, who says who? Ellen Foster is a th Southern Holden Caulfield, tougher perhaps as funny, a breathtaking first novel. And we, of course, read and discussed read, uh, Walker Lost Percy's in the Cosmos. Lost in the Cosmos, one of my favorite books of all time. It was friggin' good. Um, I do think we did do a very poor job discussing it. Of course. Just because there is n more than two hours worth of podcast discussion you could do on that book. Like, it's yeah. worth an entire series all by itself. Right. So, yeah, that's why I picked this book. It was intriguing. There's a quote by Walker Percy. The beginning of the book was intriguing. The uh, little back blurb was intriguing. Anyway, um, and it, uh, it struck me as something that perhaps we would be able to read relatively quickly and still get a lot out of, because it is short. It's 126 pages, which we should... Take a moment and let the listener read those 126 pages. Yeah, go do it. Go, gentle listener, read this book. Read Ellen Foster by Kay Gibbons, not Kay Gibbons by Ellen Foster. <laughs> Come back. And that's the least confusing way we could think of to put that. <laughs> You've been so mad today. I am very angry. Alright, what'd you think? Tell us, please. Yeah. Oh, we can't hear you. We can't hear you. <laughs> Speak up. Speak louder. Was yes. it good? Did you say good? Say good if you said good. Good? Good. I think they said good. I think that's the Is only it? option you have left them to have said. <laughs> I know. I'm controlling their narrative. <laughs> wow. That was a weird sound you made. I know it was. Um, can I initiate this no. episode no. by... Asking you what you thought of this book. <laughs> I would like, in our tradition of quoting our own text messages to each other, <laughs> to quote the uh, text message that I sent you mm -hmm. uh, shortly after finishing um, this uh, this book. I don't remember if it was... I think it must have been, like, real-time, more or less. Sure. Um, and having said something else about a thing, I said, In other news, I hate Ellen Foster. <laughs> then I said, Hat... What? <laughs> um, which was meant to be hate, but I fat-fingered the W instead of the E. So then I said, Hate... Also... And then I said, hate the way the last chapter activated every single emotion I have. Hate the way it is perfect from the first word to the last. Hate. Mm-hmm. 
Um, is that why you're so angry because I made you read a book that you hate? It it probably is. You hate this like book. the displaced emotion that I thought I would have when you made me read East of Eden <laughs> is now coming out in the you having made me read this book. Um, though that said, I freaking love this book. Yeah, and um, I do think much as I'm like extremely loath to just take advice from book covers even when the advice is like from someone that i like and there have been multiple books that i've read because someone like walker percy or neil gaiman has just recommended them in a blurb on the cover Mm -hmm. i do think walker percy's blurb on the cover of this book is perhaps the most insightful thing anyone will say on this podcast about this book yeah ellen foster is a southern holden caulfield tougher perhaps as funny. Now, as the gentle listener may remember, uh, from Raise High the Roof from Beams Carpenters, Raise High the Roof Beams Carpenters, um, the actual, you know, other Salinger novel that we read on this podcast, and also any other time that J.D. Salinger or uh, Catcher in the Rye has been raised on this podcast, I hate Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> I hate, I, and this is not like, when I send Michael a text message when I'm, like, high off of having finished Ellen Foster, claiming I hate it, but I actually love it, no. I genuinely hate Catcher in the Rye. I think it is a garbage book, and we should not subject teenagers to it. And there are other books by the same author that you could do the exact same English class stuff with, but better in every possible way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also hate Catcher in the Rye. I'm not sure if I've made that clear enough, but I do hate Catcher in the Rye. But what do you think about the Catcher in the Rye? I hate it. Oh. I hate it. You hate it. But so, what do you think about this book? I do love it <laughs> so much that I hate it. Oh, okay. It sounds similar, but it's actually very different. There's a fine line yes, there. exactly. Between hate and really hate and love and hate. Yes, Um, and, like, he's right very specifically with that adjective of Southern. This book is very much in line with, um, you know, someone else, I think, on the cover. This is not an original thought, but says, compares it to Faulkner. Yes. Um, I think you could creditably compare it to, like, one of Mark Twain's novellas. Um, certainly Walker Percy's own work. Uh, mm-hmm. though the one that like most jumps out at me as a comparison is of course Flannery O'Connor um, in several of her short stories. It was Walker Percy who also mentioned Faulkner. Okay, of course. So, it was. <laughs> um, so welcome to our Walker Percy book blurb fan cast. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, just like very much in a southern tradition but this is very much almost a southern female catcher in the rye but those adjectives are where the hate versus love dichotomy of this novel breaks Mm -hmm. because holden caulfield is very much a northern narrator he's very much a yes a privileged whiny teenage narrator and everything about him in the catcher in the rye comes out of those elements of his character um Ellen Fo- if Ellen Foster and Holden Caulfield met on the street, Holden Caulfield would get his ass pummeled into the ground. <laughs> he would leave holding a bloody nose, 
broken limbs and like whining about how a girl who was younger than him kicked his ass. The thing is, here's the thing. They would both walk away from that. She would have beat him up. Yeah. And they would walk away and say essentially the same thing about the experience. Yeah. Except that she also would say that she had won. Right. Which also Holden Caulfield would say, but he would be wrong. <laughs> okay. Is that yeah. what you meant? Or yeah. did you mean something no, else? No, that's pretty much what I meant. Okay. Yep. I mean, it's fine if you meant something else. No, that's, that's what just I meant. what I mean. Yeah. I, and also what fine. you mean. That's what I mean. According to you. Unless you're an unreliable narrator. <gasps> trying to butter me up to See. receive my inheritance. But that's Martin Chuzzlewit, the Dickens novel I'm reading and not this book. So that's an inside joke between me and my own book and not even you. <laughs> nope. So there we are. So... One person and one book in the entire world just got that joke. Which and is it was the literally who made it in the book he's reading. My dream of a relationship, <laughs> to be honest, from a very young age. Oh my goodness. Sorry, wife, but you're definitely not listening to this anyway, so Speaking of unreliable narrators. Yes. Uh Ellen Foster Okay, so my wait, first Wait, introduction... wait, wait, wait. Are you saying that maybe Ellen Foster might be an unreliable narrator? That's not what I said. Yeah, I but are say you that. saying? Did I say that? Are you saying it now, though? But did I say? Would it? you say it? Would I say it? Foul, no repetitions. One love. I'm winning the question game. Oh, is this that is so? Now Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. <laughs> which, to be fair, this podcast has been this entire time. <laughs> it's true. Little you did you know, Michael and Ethan are actually Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And also, one of us has been flipping a coin literally since this episode one. And guess literally what? since episode one. Guess what? It's always been heads. Yes. <laughs> Except the one time it was tails, but it's like 9,040 times heads. Yeah. And once tails. Right. So, my first introduction to unreliable narrators was The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Wait. Huckleberry Finn? He is unreliable ever? What? He doesn't always tell the truth? Yeah. Another southern novel. Well, I exactly. did say Mark Twain. You did. You mentioned Mark Twain. That you and I wanted to kind of bring that too. home and like make your point for Oh my you. gosh. What? I just... You know how sometimes you're thinking about Ellen Foster and then you're thinking about Huckleberry Finn and then and you're thinking about what adorable babies they would have? Wow, I wasn't thinking about that, but they would. And also they would like meet and like get together and then also go back to New York City and beat up Beautiful Holden Caulfield again. <laughs> <laughs> they they would they would use a raft on the Mississippi yeah. to get to New York City. Yeah. Somehow. <laughs> they would discover the Northwest Passage, traverse it in reverse, yep. get to New York City, kick Holden <laughs> Caulfield's ass, and uh, welcome to Michael and Ethan create fan fiction out of American letters, yes. the best podcast. Yes. I love it. I love it. It's no, but like what our I'm... version of Munch Squad. <laughs> The podcast within a podcast. Okay, just because you're listening to My Brother, My Brother and Me now doesn't mean you can do what I have tried to do and given up and <laughs> turn this into either Mabimbam or a Mabimbam fancast. You can't do either of those things. Please. Uh, okay. Please. I won't. But also, it's okay if you do. Um, okay. 
No, what I was gonna say, like, 11 digressions ago, mm-hmm. is you know when you're reading Alan, or talking about Ellen Foster, and then someone brings up Huckleberry Finn, and you think about the two, and you start thinking about them in parallel, and then, like, 17 parallels open up and blossom like a glorious flower Please in your share. brain? Please share. Okay, well, and I... Because you're the expert on Huck Finn. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> you're, the, you're the master on Huck Finn. I mean, I didn't even write about Huck Finn in my master's thesis. Yeah, but you wrote about. His, I did write about Twain and about religion, which does come up a lot in Huck Finn. I did read some stuff about Huck Finn. Anyway, there are people who know way more about it than I do, but I will say, okay. Go ahead. And I. Please say. Didn't want to bring up the race element until I was sure I knew what I was doing, but here we are. Um, and it's all over this book, so it's... Bum, 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 race cast! Inevitable. Please delete that <laughs> from this whole podcast forever. Um, okay. So, you know, Ellen Foster is a is sort of what you might, you know, charitably call a scamp, objectively call a runaway, and uncharitably call white trash. Sure. Um, which are all things you could say about Huckleberry Finn. Yes. Um, she has a black friend mm-hmm. um, who, like, I don't want to get into, like, racial politics, partly because I just don't feel like I know enough to do so authoritatively. Yeah. But I will say, like, Ellen Foster's friend... I can't remember her name. Starletta. Starletta. Starletta, in many ways, is to Ellen Foster what Jim is to Huckleberry Finn. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting parallel, because obviously you have the two female characters on one hand, two male, male characters on the other hand. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's certainly a thing. Uh, Ellen Foster runs away from home like Huck Finn does. Yes. Huck is, at least in the adventures of Huck Finn, as opposed to Tom Sawyer, Huck is much more successful than Ellen Foster is at running away from home. Though that's one of those sort of reverse parallels that seems as intentional as if it had directly followed, you know, the the uh, through line of the original. I guess that's all I can think of sure. at the moment. I mean, even uh, some of the ways that that Ellen Foster treats starletta Mm -hmm. um like if ellen foster were a white person now who was saying the sorts of things she says on the internet she would get characterized as like a fake woke white person yeah like she wants to characterize herself she knows enough to characterize herself as a uh someone who doesn't have the prejudices that a lot of the people, a lot of the white people around her do. Mm-hmm. Um, but in some ways, she's literally the embodiment of the person who would say, oh, I know this is okay. I have a black friend. Yep. And, <laughs> you know, that, that like, sort of ugly thing of, like, using your black friend, not having directly objected to you doing or saying something to justify it. Now, you know, that's maybe a little harsh on Ellen Foster because she is, like, in seventh grade and was raised in only one very specific, pretty insular cultural milieu. But, 
Um, again, you could say all of those things I just said about Ellen Foster, you could conceivably say about Huckleberry Finn. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it shows kind of a progression throughout time in the way these issues are talked about. Like, I know Huck Finn has been characterized as a racist novel yes. by many critics. Right. And the I think probably about half of those same critics would characterize Ellen Foster as a racist novel. But only half. But only half, exactly. Why? Because it, there's, there's a progression here that... Uh, Ellen Foster at least recognizes the way she's treating Starletta. Right. And notices that she's doing something different. And but there in is some a ways, growth within it. But yeah, in some ways true. she's still not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, once again, this novel that I just threw on the floor for no reason is... Because you're mad at it. That's because I'm just angry in general, I guess. <laughs> um, this novel is... Uh... Again, again, like Ocean at the End of the Lane, um, a masterful exercise in the author conveying a certain thing through the use of a first-person narrator who doesn't know the thing that the author is conveying, but the author communicates it to the reader without the character figuring it out. Yep. And there are just certain ways that, that Ellen Foster exhibits... Um, what, you know, a lot of theorists would call probably, uh, um, internalized racism. Not that she's doing it on purpose or that she has any conscious will to hurt or degrade Starletta, just that she's going along with the structures of society that Mm -hmm. do that for her. And she's doing it because it helps her remain on top in a certain position of power, which, again, maybe she doesn't even know that consciously. Because that's a much harder thing to sort of unbury from your consciousness than something like, oh, she has black skin, I'm going to treat her worse. Right. Therefore. May, may I uh, complicate this meta issue by uh, directing your eyes to page 68? Well, not by doing that, but you may complicate it. All right. I grant you my boon. Okay. Bottom of page 68, the last line... Um, this is, uh, while she's staying with her mama's mama. Yeah. Um, which, we'll talk about that. <laughs> um, the, in the, in the middle of that line, it says, I still wonder sometimes if I am fine myself, or if I have tricked myself into believing I am who I think I am. And that's pretty much this whole novel, yeah. is her tricking herself into an identity. Which right. is kind of the author also functioning as the tricking herself part. Right. And to complicate that even further... Please do. Um, Because, like, I do agree, or at least I think this is me agreeing, that if you were going to encapsulate the whole novel in one sentence yes. from the novel, that sentence you just read would be it. Yeah. Um, Which but I just think... so happens to be about the exact middle of the novel. Uh, it's a little past the middle, but it's middle. it's functionally story wise yeah. as good as anything for the middle. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, which we have to talk about structure at some point. Okay. Um, we can talk about structure. Are you sure? I think Maybe so. it's not that important though. Is it? Maybe it's not like okay. one of the central linchpins of the entire stupid, stupid, stupid book. Is it? I don't think so. You're making me lose confidence by questioning me. 
I'll question you further. What do you mean? <laughs> um, well, I don't want to talk about structure yet, so okay, I'm not telling we'll you. Okay, we'll wait on it. Uh... But, okay, so this this whole idea of her tricking okay. herself so, into an identity. Yes, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Um, so I th- so that's definitely there, and that's definitely sort of a, a question and a theme and even a quest that's going on throughout this novel. However, I think there's a further question that the author is asking, okay. which is, is that wrong? Sure. Because that, again, this is... Another similar to uh, um, when I sort of said last time, gave a, a uh, an anatomy of what separates a good author from a great author like Neil Gaiman in The Ocean at the End of the Lane. Um, this is what separates you know a perfectly good author writing a novel like this mm-hmm. from a from a great author because a good author would just leave you with sort of this unreliable narrator and this idea of the construction of identity which would be very popular in like postmodernist lit crit type circles which would have been extremely piquant in 1987 when uh you know k gibbon published this novel right Mm -hmm. but uh 1960 wait what Oh, no, 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 that's her her years. Never mind. Nope, 1987, yeah. you're correct. you darn right. So, fight me. Um, no, that's okay. <laughs> you win this round. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, a good author would leave you there. I, yeah. I, uh, I wonder if I have tricked myself into believing I am who I think I am. Mm-hmm. A great author, like, for example, Kay Gibbons writing the book Ellen Foster, Mm. goes one step further and says, if that's how you get to the good life, which is, you know, considered sort of the central question of all philosophy, is that inherently wrong? Because it would be easy as, for example, someone like Holden Caulfield would do to say that because you are a hypocrite or are contradicting your own state of beliefs that therefore you are bad without defining what bad means and what good would mean in relation to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I think we do find the climax of the novel. Um, and where I, uh, uh, have my structural argument, I think. Okay. Um, because, like, what did you notice about this novel structurally? Well, um, kind of like when we talked about the House of Special Purpose, there yes. was like the back and forth timeline. Yeah, it did. It didn't kind of like start at one end and then the other end and meet in the middle right. like that one does. Instead, it's got two parallel stories running. Well, not stories, but time periods running. Yes, uh, the past timeline running much more quickly than the present or future timeline was running, or the nearer past timeline yes. um, was running, where we've got Ellen Foster on her way to the good life, and yes. then Ellen Foster in the good life. Yes. That structure, um, when it first cropped up, I wasn't sure what to think about it, but as it continued, I loved it. Yeah. Because we see the end of this arc of her character 
Yeah. And then we find out there's even another arc within at the end. Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. Um, and it's a little bit counterintuitive, especially for, I would say, like, the first half of the novel. Mm-hmm. Because this type of story, especially, you know, this reaches back to, like, an Oliver Twist type of story. Sure. Right? You have yep. an orphan mm-hmm. who um, has very bad influences in her life and very yep. good influences in her life. Um and you have her sometimes in the hands of the very bad influences and sometimes in the hands of the very good influences. Right. Um, and the major sort of dramatic question of the whole book is what what influences does she allow to sort of permeate and right. to but make her who she is? What's interesting is, it, and, you know, you mentioned that parallel with Huck Finn. Yeah. And here it's Huck Finn without the river. Yeah, yeah. Like, she she encounters the same personalities, the same influences that Huck Finn does. You know, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Yeah. Positive and negative. But it's without the river. Yeah. So it kind of turns the river into something more spiritual. Yeah, yeah. But also, you know, it it sort of turns this book inward as far as, like, the portrayal of a community goes, right? Like, it's very much, you know... You have this, this, so sort of the middle portion of the, of the novel, just page count wise, she's living with her mama's mama, mm-hmm. who is almost, and this is where it gets the most, both Dickensian and also sort of Neil Gaiman-ish, like the sure. closest it flirts with a fantastic element is here, yeah. because it gets very gothic in some yes. ways. Um, and it definitely has echoes and that, cannot have been unintentional of that like southern gothic literary tradition yeah. that is you know borders with like the european gothic which overlaps with like what we would now call fantasy like mm-hmm. it's all sort of in the same stew pot together and certainly there's no element in this book that you couldn't explain sort of rationalistically or materialistically but just like the spiritual overtones of that central part of the book um, they're almost like an old like Betty Davis movie, like mm-hmm. Now Voyager, or you know one of those movies where Betty Davis is like cooped up in a house with a bitter old woman who manipulates her forever, and you know um, it's just sort of a a constant war between the two of them while the one is pretending to care for the other, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's what that whole middle part of the book is. And I have no idea where I was going with that. You were talking about the structure. Yeah. Did you have more about that? Because like, I have a connector here. Go for it. Okay. Um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to enter a little segment I like to call Names with Michael. Oh, man. Name. 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 Name with Michael. We haven't had this for several episodes. I know, we haven't. But um, it it's... This book asks for it? I I do remember thinking, I don't remember at what point while reading through this, but I do remember thinking that we needed a segment of Names with Michael. It's page 87. Yeah, naturally. Um, <laughs> I mean, of course I knew that, for sure. She's talking with uh, the counselor at the school, I think. 
Oh, of course. Okay, yes. Um, and he says to her in the midst of this counseling session, um, oh, and this is just one of the best scenes in the book. Yeah. I'm just going to say it. Yeah. Oh, so good. But we're right in the middle of that scene on page 87, right in the middle of the page. Uh, the counselor says, and here's the thing, that this book doesn't use quotation marks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is a, a, a fun little thing. Which is another, like, Faulkner type Faulkner, thing. but also even Cormac McCarthy. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Who is another, like, at least spiritual cousin of this book, I would yeah. say. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so right there, uh, the counselor says, I understand from your teacher that you've taken to signing your papers differently. And then her little internal monologue, I wondered when somebody would catch it. <laughs> so, like, here's what's interesting. She's established this change of identity. Yeah. Knowing what she's done and wondering when other people would catch on to it. Right. And right away, I'm intrigued here. Uh, well, Ellen, he says, like he might be a little confused his own self. We can understand if you were misspelling your name, but you've been signing... Foster as your last name this entire term. Did you realize that? And she says, of course I know my last name, I tell him. Okay, then tell me your name. Ellen Foster. But that is not your last name. And that's the first place where we really see that that she's been using a pseudonym the entire book. Mm -hmm. The title of the book is a pseudonym. It's Mm -hmm. fake. It's false. Um, Continue through here. Uh, the counselor's trying to, to explain to her how psychology works, that uh, when children have trauma, they change their identity and come up with a new persona who can deal with the things that they've dealt with or move on from them. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, she goes on on page 88, I hate to tell him he's wrong about all of that. Like, no, I haven't experienced right. a trauma that makes me want to a new identity, right. which is a flat-out lie. Right. Um Although, okay, I'll come back to that. Um, I hate to tell him he's wrong because you can tell it took him a long time to make up his ideas. So here's what's interesting. She's accusing him of making up ideas when she's making up her identity. Right. Um, And the worst part is I can see he believes them. Go ahead, Ellen. Tell me what you're thinking. It's okay. That may not be the name God or my mama gave me, but that is my name now. Ellen Foster. My old family wore the other name out. And I figured I would take the name of my new family. That one is fresh. Foster. I told him all that. And the thing is, we never hear what her original last name was. Yes, which is great. Absolutely great. Um, I'm starting to see your point, he says. Go ahead, he told me. Before I even met Stella or Jojo or the rest of them, I heard they were the Foster family. Then I moved in the house and met everybody and figured it was okay to make my name like theirs. And this is after she's living the good life. Yeah. And with this woman who is her new mama that she's been uh, describing her as the entire time. And right away, right there, the reader knows what's happened. Yeah. When she hears they're the foster family. Right. And she's taken that name. All of a sudden we know what happens. And then right. the, the counselor explains it to her uh, after a while, uh, uh, just like a few more paragraphs. Uh, he laughs uh, at how childish she is. What's amazing about this is a couple of things. Number one, from the first chapter, we get the significance of foster. Um, because the first line, which is a great first line in all literature, is yeah. when I was little, I would think of ways to kill my daddy. Right. So, okay, 
child and parent relationship being broken is right away there at the beginning. So the idea of a foster parent or a foster child is right away there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, she bounces around between caretakers. Yes. Making her a foster child. Right. Without ever coming to the formal establishment of being a foster child as she comes to in the good life. In the good life, she is a foster child. Right. Um, also but, making her husband on the river, which yes. I remembered what I was going to say about, but we should complete this let segment me, let me before this we train. go into another segment. Sure. Because that would get confusing. It would get confusing. And it's not like segments. we ever cross segments or do anything we out of order or rational structure on this show. Not at all. We are very organized and well-structured. So, um, not only that, not only is she a foster child, but she acts as a foster parent. Uh huh. To several of her caretakers, yeah. to her mother, she cares for her mother and her yeah. illness, uh, and her mama's mama, she cares for her as well as a parent. Uh, Starletta also, she asks, yes. acts as a parent to Starletta, even to her father to some extent. Yes, yes, to her father, she she acts in the role of a foster parent. She is this young girl who must be a foster parent to several people, including her own actual mother and father, which establishes the the importance of the name of foster, which is, here's what's really fascinating about that. She's taken the name foster without actually meaning, knowing what it means. Yes. And therefore has actually tricked herself into that identity yes. of foster with more meaning than she actually meant. Yeah. And the author is the one who has provided all of that for her. Right. So that's what's great about Foster. Aside from that, take her first name, Ellen, which is the name God and her mama gave her. Right. Um, Ellen sounds like another theme of this book and of this character, alone. Huh. She is a lonely character, and she makes herself alone a lot of the time, and other characters make her alone a lot of the time. She's isolated. Like a Holden Caulfield type. Yeah. Uh, she's very alone. But then uh, that gets resolved. That very theme of her aloneness gets resolved by the end of the book, uh, where the second to last paragraph on page 126, after she has Starletta over, or she brings Starletta over and starts treating her well and opening herself up to Starletta's difficulties, yes. seeing her, second to last paragraph, which is one sentence, she says, and all this time, I thought I had the hardest row to hoe. That will always amaze me. Which yeah. is just the perfect and most satisfying ending yes. to this book ever. Because she's not alone anymore. Yeah. She, she's thought of herself as alone and therefore having the hardest row to hoe the entire book until she gets to this point right. where she cares for Starletta in a real way. Right. And then she sees she has difficulty. And from her own sense of aloneness... She sees Starletta's sense of aloneness and therefore can be the friend and companion and help that Starletta actually yeah. really needs. Yeah. So that's Names with Michael. Excellent. So I reala- I remembered what I was going for. So you were saying that this book is Huckleberry Finn without the river. Yeah. Um. So I was talking about that whole gothic central section. Yeah. Um. And it is like this... this Book. Which is where she acts so much more mature than she really should. Yeah. And, like, this book very much sort of skips genres in sort of a low-key way. Mm-hmm. You have that gothic central section. You very much have sort of a, a realistic uh, 
sort of an opening. You have an ending that almost is is very sort of child's novel esque. Um and all of these are sort of sort of uh tamped down into a you know, a coherent style. Like these these spikes are very sort of um very much outgrowth of one central style and, and theme and uh set of ideas. But um the effect, and you you know, we talk about her bouncing around from caretaker to caretaker, first with her dad, then with her aunt briefly, um, then with her mama's mama, then with the other aunt, and then finally with the, the foster family, if you're looking at it chronologically. Um and this is you could probably chart this against Huck Finn's various stops sort of on on the river, right? Mm-hmm. Um which you can you can make an interesting sort of a an ancestral connection between a very much picaresque novel like Tom Jones, um, down to a picaresque but with complications novel like Huckleberry Finn, and then from there to this novel, which would be picaresque if she was going on a literal journey, but she's not. These are all things that exist in the same town and in the same fairy yeah. insular community, mm-hmm. um, to the point that you have the mama's mama like you have this whole anatomy of how she spied on Ellen and mm-hmm. and Ellen's mother and Ellen's father. And, you know, this is very much an extremely, like anyone who has lived in a small enough town ever anywhere will recognize at least some of the elements how in this. possible that is. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, you have the one rich person in town um, and a lot of people hate them to a certain extent, yep. but they also can buy within their very limited sphere of influence buy just about anything because they have that wealth. The 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 structure of the town also reflects the structure of the novel too, because it's not a perfectly linear structure. Yeah. Um, which we we talked about a little bit, but it it in a lot of ways it's not perfectly linear because even within those two timelines. It jumps around a little bit, and like yeah. there are reveals from the future that we come back to, yeah. and and stuff, and and what that does with this small, it, it 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 is the blueprint of a small town, right? Because you go buy a house to get to a certain place, right? And you're gonna pass that same house going a different direction, right? And that's exactly what this book right. is doing. You're going down one street, and you pass certain things along the way, and then right. when you're going somewhere else later on, you're gonna pass by some of those same things and hit them again. And that's not to mention, like, the sense of history that a small town often has, where, you know, things that happened a hundred years ago, um, and this is true in cities to a certain value, but it's very, it's true in a very sort of specific way in a small town. Mm -hmm. You will um, encounter certain parts of history and certain families that have lived in this town forever and certain institutions that are there, and you'll get them every which way you turn. Yep. You know, um my my parents have lived in uh the same this is about a seven thousand person town in Wisconsin, so not the smallest town, but certainly not what you'd call a large town. They've lived there most of my twenty nine years. Um You're old. I know. <laughs> but they still feel like newcomers to this town. Mm-hmm. Because they haven't lived there for generations. And, you know, I've lived in that same town, um, all except the 
six years that I was away at college, and I can just see having been sort of on the inside of a lot of institutions in this in this town, I can see how, you know, some people's um even just buildings and uh just as far as street names and the legacy of certain businesses and the the what you now? Know, legacy of certain businesses. <laughs> oh. And, you know, for a second there, and this is probably just my hearing. I thought you said the legacy. Well, you're wrong, <laughs> so try doing better. I guess I will. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm so angry. You um, are really angry. I'm this very episode. angry. I'm sorry, gentle listener. I'm yeah. sorry that you have to put up with this. I'm this not is sorry. My cross to bear. I'm, I'm not the one sorry who's married to, you. to him. Wait, so. what? What? What did you say? What did I say? What did you say? I think I... You just recorded was... it on tape, so I will be able to play it for your wife. I don't know about that. I do. So I know how technology That's works. something that uh, you're making up. Is it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Anyway, in small towns, again, just as far as like linear time goes, you feel like you skip back and forth and, you know, have these these crossings and recrossings um so yeah the structure of this book very much reflects that it also and this is like the thing i've been flirting with this entire episode flirting with saying um besides me besides you uh is that there the structure of this book is fascinating because in a way it reveals what should be saved till the end it reveals it right at the beginning yeah which you is know from stupid almost the word go that she ends up in a fairly happy situation with prospects for the future that are as bright as you could hope given the context and area and you know type of place that she comes out of yep. like you know that much you know that in as much as the sort of time context of the story allows for a hot happy ending you've got a happy ending mm-hmm. and yet this book still has a structural climax yes. even though it's bouncing back and forth um time wise throughout this book in a way that like shouldn't work with the classic sort of aristotle's incline right um it does and where that comes to a head is the first half of chapter 15, which is the, the last, last chapter. chapter of the book. Um, so, page... Does this book have the same number of chapters as Ocean at the End of the Length? Oh, it might. I don't know. that It would sound about right. Depending Besides, on... Ocean at the End of the Lane has a prologue and epilogue. See, and that's what I was going to say. A pro-prologue, a prologue, and an epilogue. That's where the that extra 50 pages come in. For... Yes. Ocean at the End of the Lane. Otherwise, they were just writing an identical novel, I That's guess. right. They're... This is the same book. It's just one has a pro prologue and a prologue and an epilogue and the other. I sort doesn't. of want to do that episode of this podcast now, where we map this book onto Ocean at the End of the Lane and figure out oh how it gosh. is that they are the same book. Because I feel like we could we could do that justify we it. We could just about do exactly yeah. that. Anyway, uh, that's maybe not what we're doing. maybe next episode. Actually, yeah. we've got one more episode we do. to go. We do. Anyway, so now the. The, to understand that this is the climax of the book, you have to understand the previous chapter, chapter mm-hmm. 14. And chapter 14 is the one in which uh, Ellen is staying at Nadine and Dora's house. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and in which she reveals that she is both very brilliant and also still a child. Yes. Because she comes up with this extremely manipulative plan to do everything that she wants as far as these two women go. Both to humiliate them in that passive-aggressive southern way that I do recognize more than I'd like to admit having lived in Minnesota and Wisconsin (laughs) all my life. Like, weirdly parallel in some ways at least. Um, But to manipulate them, to make them feel bad, but also to make herself feel good and be the good guy. Um, She has this really very complex and brilliant plan Especially for someone who's in, like, seventh grade, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so there are two ways that you can understand chapter 14 before we get to the climax in chapter 15. Okay. Um, one is that this child is just a, you know, psychopath, a manipulative psychopath who um, just manipulates everybody sort of the same way that Holden Caulfield or a lot of a narrators in Gene Wolfe novels and stories mm-hmm. or a Nabokovian narrator mm-hmm. um, that any of them could be said to do. Now you could read it that way and I would have full respect for you. Like it's not sure. a illegitimate way to read it. Um, or you could read chapter 14 as the result of a child who has been traumatized in so many ways, starting with almost completely offstage the death of her mother, um, continuing into the alcoholism and at least, like, the implication of sexual assault from her father. Like, it's never clear... It seems like everybody but Ellen Foster thinks that happened. And even Ellen gets right up to the edge of describing it. Yeah. And even that you can think about two ways. You yep. can it's it, I think it would be legitimate to say that she's just telling the truth and he got to the edge and never did it. I think it would also be legitimate to assume that she's unreliable enough to not have told us. Mm-hmm. Um and that it did happen. I I think that's one of those ones that you have to just um if you take a firm stance on it, you have to agree to disagree. There's not enough information to make a ruling 100%. Right. Um, That said, I mean, either one is traumatizing. Absolutely. And I think maybe, you know, Kay Gibbons left that as ambiguous as it is Mm -hmm. to underline the fact that, you know, being actively, actually physically assaulted, you know, is obviously the worst end of a spectrum, but it's still a spectrum, and lesser ends of the spectrum are still traumatic. Um, you know, if you if you get verbally threatened or have someone sort of rush at you and then pull back or anything like that, like, is also tr- a trauma that you need to work through, right? Yep. Um, so that's clearly a deep trauma. And those two, like, potentially, as psychology tells us, probably deepest traumas of the book are the least focused on. Absolutely. We then also have the sort of abusive relationship on several levels with her mama's mama. Um, We have the fact of multiple people beyond that, not necessarily abusing, but definitely abandoning her. Yep. Um, The art teacher who uh, 
is like the, the healthiest caretaker. Is the healthiest caretaker and then gets yanked away from her yep. by a system that's supposedly trying to help her. Yep. Um, the counselor who is at best indifferent, which might not be his fault, it might be her fault, but either way it's not or, an act of help. Like, at, at, at best he's helping her theoretically. Yeah, as opposed to literally. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So you have all of these traumas, averted traumas, and at best lack of help experiences that Ellen has gone through. I don't, I think for me personally, it would take an awful lot less than this amount of experiences to turn me into someone who thought I had to manipulate everybody in my life in order to just carve out a peaceful life for myself, let alone a good life. Right? Yep. Um, and again, a good author would have just left us there. Yep. Might have cut it off at the end of chapter 14 and said, well, this is where it left me. I, you know, tried to manipulate people and failed, but this is the person these experiences have turned me into. And you could see her growing into, like, if you just cut this off at chapter 14, like mm-hmm. um, A Clockwork Orange cuts off one chapter early in the bastardized original American edition, <laughs> um, you could see her turning into even the main character from A Clockwork Orange. This very manipulative, you know, sort of... you it, For Ellen Foster, you'd almost see her growing into, like, the classic femme fatale. Yeah, Like, absolutely. using all of her wiles and her intelligence yep. to sort of manipulate a hostile well, world in a, in a super tragic way yeah you see her developing into that absolutely um but in sort of a miracle and a brilliant oh. burst of literary inspiration instead of ending at chapter 14 you get chapter 15 um which is literally just a chapter that's about grace <sighs> yeah um and To me, the climax of the book is the first half of chapter 15, and the denouement is the second half, but you could say that the whole of chapter 15 is the climax, and the denouement is those last two lines that uh, you read earlier, Um, or you could say that that's the James Joyce style epiphany, is those last two lines. You could argue, to my mind, that those last two lines are the climax of the book. In a very similar way to that in which um, the last line of A Catcher in the Rye is supposed to be the climax, the, like, epiphany that Holden Caulfield has. Sure. Like, everyone who tries to defend Catcher in the Rye as not just a novel about a whiny, manipulative jackass of a teenager (laughs) literally uses the last, like, two sentences of the book. Right, which, which is just like his revelation. It's not in here. Oh, I was thinking of your other bookshelf. Yeah, oh well. But yes, yeah, his sort of a Vedic or Buddhistic revelation that yep. all of these broken, hypocritical people are like beautiful and lovable. Yeah. Um, which again is the same revelation that Franny and Zoe gets to, but Franny and Zoe gets their way better. So why don't we make all of our teenagers read that much better book instead of Catcher in the Rye? Okay, I'm done. 
Good. I'm glad. Okay. <laughs> so. So that all said, we are right at the edge of our time. Yes. And, and I, I'm thinking I maybe want to just save chapter 15. For next time? For next time. That's fine with me. Because we have We will take our the... author, our leader. Our leader? Our authors, our leaders. Our authors, our leaders, our, our audience. Our listeners. That's... <laughs> Our authors, our reader, no, yeah. Our authors, our, our leaders, leaders, our, our listeners, what should be the new slogan for this podcast? Our authors, our leaders, our listeners. I like yes. it. Yeah. So you are all uh, the unreliable narrator creating Michael and me is what you should take away from this podcast. It's true. Um, you are because I will say we have taken the other fork of this road on this podcast many times, and it has led to us doing two-hour-long podcast out of the hour that we have allotted ourselves. Yep, absolutely. So, so we're going to stop here. So Because in, we love you, gentle listener. Because, yes, this this is our act of grace for you. Yeah, and you can believe that or not, as uh, reliable or unreliable as you find Michael or me. Yep. Being the narrators that you have created. Exactly. Through an act of willing podcast cassette tapes into existence. Right. I'm just gonna ignore Ethan. Um, Take several who words to is a figment of say my imagination that you're ignoring me. So yeah, yep. Uh, and so we're gonna come back in two weeks and continue discussing Ellen Foster by Kate Gibbons. Uh, so in the meantime, read along if you haven't already read the entire book, even though we've Which, already spoiled the ending. We've spoiled a bunch of it, and we gave you a chance already. We did, we did. So. It's no one's fault it's but your own. It's really your fault. Yep. You dumb jerk. But what you can do, because we know you have already read this book, is go to tapestryradio.org and leave your feedback in the contact section or in the comments below this episode. Uh, also, uh, go to the uh, Scotch Talk page, tapestryradio.org slash Scotch Talk, and if you have any homework that you'd like to submit to us, uh, put that into the form at the top of that page. Uh, and we'll take a crack at it. We don't promise to do it well. We don't promise uh, to do it in a timely manner. We don't promise anything of quality. We do promise that if you take the homework that we do for you and turn it in as your homework, you your professor will be like, who are the two idiots who clearly did this homework and are not you? And your professor, professor will give you an F, and Michael and F, and me and F. And Michael and Nobody I wants that. are perfectionist students who have never gotten Fs in our lives, probably. Never, ever. So, if you make that happen to us, we will, we will hunt you down. That's right. So, That's right. We will plan our revenge in a very real way. Yeah, that is definitely real and also exists. Not fake. And definitely exists. Yep, exactly. But, you know... Otherwise, if you like what we do here on our podcast, review us on iTunes and give us five stars and a review. Uh, and also follow us on Twitter at Room with Scotch. Uh, and on Facebook, uh, you can join the Tapestry Radio Tap House. It's a closed group. Request to join. We'll let you in as long as you are not a, an unreliable narrator. Which no one on Facebook is ever. Nope. Everyone so, tells the truth all, all the, time, the time, 100%, yes. with no ulterior motives. If you get a bot who ha whose name is in Cyrillic, 
who is telling you who to vote for in the next American election, that is just a real American person. Exactly. And not not an American person. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, moving on from that. uh, Follow our network also, the Tapster Radio Network, and enjoy some of the other great shows we have on that. Like... Uh, Intermission, our audio drama podcast. Pokemon Rollout, our Pokemon United Real Play RPG podcast. So close. Pokemon Tabletop United Real Play RPG podcast. Yeah, you're right. I didn't say top table, so I'm the worst. Yeah, also um, you didn't say tabletop. I'm gonna cut you. <laughs> <I know>. uh, <laughs> with a knife, to be clear. Yeah, I know. I know. I know you know. I know you, you know, know I know. You know I know I know you know. Anyway. Uh, where are you on Twitter, Ethan, and other wares? At Bjartlet, B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. I don't post a lot, but if you post at me, I probably will see it in a semi-timely manner. Uh, and I'm on Twitter at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. Excellent work. Thank you. Pinporter Girl Detective is a webcomic for which I write the script. Uh, that was the my... most complicated way you could say that sentence. It's not, but <laughs> don't challenge me like that. Uh, my friend Robin does the art, and her art is excellent, and also my words are on it, so check that out. It's a uh, noir detective fairy tale webcomic starring a 12-year-old girl who, frankly, I would not want to get on the bad side of. And also a talking fancy pigeon. So if that doesn't 100% make you want to read my webcomic, you probably shouldn't be listening to this podcast. I don't mean to draw like a big line in the sand there, but I guess here we are. Sure. Yeah, thank you for that ringing endorsement. Okay. (laughs) You're welcome. Uh, So until uh, two weeks from now, we are Michael and Ethan in a room with Scotch. And we are in a room with Scotch. But it's not not about about Scotch. Thank you and good night. We love you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From our fancy to yours. yours.